morning, everybody. Thanks for getting up uh, early. It wasn't your choice exactly, but uh, good, good for you to get here anyway. Um, today, you're, what you're basically getting in the last two lectures, this, yesterday's lecture and today's lecture, is a preview of the new book. Uh, the discussion of the Declaration of Independence is really chapter one of uh, the new book, Our Republican Constitution. And today, uh, my talk is an overview of the book, uh, the, the, the central thesis of the book. Uh, and then uh, we should have plenty of time for discussion of the thesis and um, uh, any other a aspects of constitutional law that you want to talk about. So let's just get going. American politics today is bitterly divided between two opposing camps. It seems that each side of the political divide exists in a world with its own narrative and its own facts that differ entirely from those who may live next door who work in the next office, yet who seemingly live in a different world. That, um, but what is it exactly that divides us? What are the competing worldviews that animate these competing camps? In this talk this morning, I'm going to present just one of several aspects of these two worldviews, but one I believe lies at the core of today's debate, the existence of two fundamentally divergent views of the Constitution of the United States. I call these divergent conceptions the Democratic Constitution and the Republican Constitution. Uh, but despite the little laughter I got yesterday about those terms, I don't intend these labels to be partisan. There are political conservatives who hew to some aspects of the Democratic Constitution and some progressives who adopt aspects of the Republican one. Many people, perhaps most people, flit between conceptions depending on what happens to conform to the results they like. I chose the terms Democratic and Republican constitutions because both terms have deep roots in our constitutional history, and neither is pejorative. I dislike arguments by labeling, uh, and both these labels have a positive connotation as opposed to a negative one. So at its core, this debate is about the meaning of popular sovereignty. So the first co basic concept I'm going to talk about is popular sovereignty sovereignty, something that libertarians typically don't talk that much about. Those who adhere to a democratic constitution hold a different conception of popular sovereignty than those who adhere to a republican constitution. So I need to begin by explaining the role that popular sovereignty plays in our thinking about the constitution. The concept of popular sovereignty was first developed in the United States at the time of the founding. Back then, it was a first principle of political theory that sovereignty, or the right to rule, must reside somewhere in any polity. There must be some place where sovereignty exists. Now, while the ultimate sovereign was thought to be God, who ruled the world, on earth, monarchs claimed to be the sovereign rulers of their own people, ruling by delegation from God, or what was called divine right. When the Americans had their revolution and rejected the rule of the English king, the po political theory required them to say, well, just who is the sovereign in your new polity? It was just one of these obligatory things you had to say. The answer they gave to this question was, the people themselves are the ultimate sovereign. The people themselves are the ultimate sovereign. But this answer raised at least as many questions as it solved. If sovereignty is the answer to the question of who has the right to rule, 
In what sense do the people rule? This seems like a contradiction. We need government to rule the people, and yet the people themselves are supposed to be the sovereign or ultimate ruler? You haven't answered the question. And there, in fact, there was, it was pretty incoherent. They needed an answer, they gave the answer, and then worked out what that might mean from then on in. I mean, okay, well, fine, well, let's figure that one out. What I'm calling the democratic constitution is one way to answer the, uh, to address the problem of how sovereignty can be, uh, how the sovereign people can be said to rule. If sovereignty is is conceived as residing in the people collectively or as a body, then popular sovereignty means rule by the people as a body. And rule by the people means rule according to the will of the people. And here, I just want to point out, philosophers, you've, you've all been, you know, when you went to school, you heard about will this and will that, the will of this and the will of that. Uh, will is just a, a fancy or an archaic name for desire, the desires of the people, the will of, what's your will? What is your desire? It's sort of the same way of saying the same thing, only will is more highfalutin. But it actually helps sometimes to translate will into desire, the term desire. So will, according to the desire of the people, is what... Um, as a body, which is this first answer to the question of the people rule. They rule as a body. They rule collectively. Um, and so the rule by the people means rule by the desire, according to the desire of the people as a group. Now, of course, it makes perfect sense to talk about the will or desire of a sovereign monarch. Kings have desires. Queens have desires. Emperors have desires. This all makes sense. But what sense does it, in what sense does a body of individual persons have a collective will or desire? What is the will or desire of the group in this room at this moment, for example? Now, no one who makes assertions about the will of the people ever claims that there must be, or ever is, a unanimous consensus of everyone to some particular desire, and that's the will of the people. They never think it's... Everybody, 100%. They never think that. So in practice, the collective will of the people must rest on the desires of a majority or supermajority of the people. It's sort of inevitable. That's going to be the will of the people, the will of the greater number. The desires of the greater number is the desires of the people as a whole. That's very common. This should all make sense to you. It doesn't because it can't rest on the desires of every single person. Therefore, in operation, a conception of popular sovereignty based on uh, rule according to the will of the people means rule according to the will of a majority of the people. Now, I've drawn this out by elaborating the steps in the argument, but you all know this. This is generally the regime under which we live, and I would say probably in many respects what most people in this room would also think was true and valid. So the democratic constitution starts with a collective vision of popular sovereignty based on the will of the people as a group. And the ultimate will of the people can then only be the the will of the majority or the greater number. According to this conception, then, a legitimate constitution is a democratic constitution. It sets up institutional mechanisms by which the desires of a majority of the people can be expressed. Perhaps in local affairs, everyone can get together in a town hall meeting and express their views and vote. 
just as the citizens of Athens once voted in the forum. But in any larger polity, we must rely on elected representatives of the people who are supposed to literally represent, that's kind of the root of representative, they represent the views of the majority of their constituents in a legislative body. This is known as legislative, representative democracy. Representative democracy, we you know, up the street, you can see the big dome building, 535 people there, our representatives, you know, 435 call themselves representatives, the others call themselves senators, and they are there to represent the will of the American people. That's how people think of them under this vision of the democratic constitution. Now, if a well-constructed uh, democratic constitution based on collect the collection, collective conception of popular sovereignty is one that allows the views of the majority to prevail, then a number of important implications follow from this premise. First and foremost, any principle or practice that gets in the way of the will of the majority or majority rule is presumptively illegitimate and requires special justification. Anything that gets in the way of majority rule or the will of the majority has a hill to climb, has a special burden, because popular sovereignty means rule according to the will of the majority. So under the democratic constitution, the only individual rights that are legally enforceable are a product of majoritarian will. Whether the will of majorities in legislatures who create legal rights and statutes they pass, or the will of majorities who ratified the Constitution, or the supermajorities that ratified the amendments to the Constitution that create constitutional rights. So in this vision, all the rights we have, all the enforceable rights we have, though they may be natural rights and they're in the background, but they're not operational. The only enforceable rights we have are, are legal rights created by statutes, created by majorities, and constitutional rights created by the Constitution, also created by majorities, maybe majorities in the past, but super major or supermajorities. So all the rights we have come are within or consistent with this majoritarian vision of popular sovereignty. So under the democratic constitution, first comes government, and then comes rights. Rights are a product of government, or rights are a product of a constitutional uh, convention, which is a, you know, a form of a government, a pre-government pre government. First, one needs to establish a polity with a legislature that represents the will of the people, that represents the will of the people, and then this legislature will then decide which rights get legal protection and which do not. This should all sound really familiar. It's kind of how the world works. I'm not making anything up here. So the democratic constitution is also a living constitution whose meaning evolves to align with contemporary popular desires so that today's majority is not bound by what is sometimes called the dead hand of the past. After all, but what, by what right does the, does the will or desires of yesterday's majority override the will of the majority today? Popular sovereignty means ruled by the people, by us, the people themselves. Well, we here today are the people themselves, not those guys 200 years ago, 100 years ago, 50 years ago, it's us. And so, generally speaking, a democratic constitution should evolve to reflect 
the will of the people today, the desires of a majority of the people today. Under the Democratic Constitution, unelected judges who are not accountable to the majority present what Alexander Bickel called the counter-majoritarian difficulty. Alexander Bickel was this law professor, um, and he wrote this book. Uh, and in this book, he talked about what he called the counter-majoritarian, it was at least called the least dangerous branch. And, and in this book, he talked about the counter-majoritarian difficulty with the courts. They go against the majority. How do you justify that? He then went on to try to justify it. But first, he identified the problem. Courts are unelected, unaccountable. You've all heard this. But, and they're going against the, de the Democratic majority. That's a problem. Judges are appointed, they're not elected, and in a federal system, they serve for life. To the extent they invalidate popularly enacted laws, these unelected and unaccountable judges are thwarting the will of the people as manifested in the, by their elected representatives. Under the Democratic Constitution, judges are told they should exercise their power of judicial review with restraint. Restraint. They should defer to the will of the popularly elected branches, who are the most legitimate, by adopting a presumption of constitutionality, presuming laws to be constitutional, uh, this presumption that simply presumes, and in some cases irrebuttably presumes, you're not allowed to rebut the presumption, that properly elected legislators have, pro have acted properly when they restrict the liberties of the people. Judges should not get in the way of that. They should presume what legislatures do is okay. Because, the thinking goes, the people are only restricting themselves. The people, through their representatives, are only restricting themselves. It's consent, we are told. And how they wish to govern themselves is for their democratically selected representatives to decide. Okay. Now today, belief in the democratic constitution that I have just described to you is so pervasive amongst, among both progressives and conservatives, amongst Democrats and Republicans, that you might be sitting there wondering, what other view of the Constitution could there possibly be? What is the other one? Because that one sounds perfectly familiar to me. I know some of you are sitting there hoping there's another one. <laughs> <laughs> but this is the only one you heard about. And so what else is there, right? So perhaps the most important purpose of this talk this morning and my book ultimately is just to identify and describe this other view of the Constitution, what I am calling the Republican Constitution, so that you can recognize it as a distinct vision of the Constitution. You just know there's two out there and you can figure out what's the difference. Okay, let's turn to the Republican Constitution now. What separates the Republican Constitution from the Democratic Constitution is its, or starts with, its conception of popular sovereignty. This is the key concept on which everything else turns. Where the Democratic Constitution views sovereignty as residing in the people collectively or as a group, the Republican Constitution views sovereignty residing in the people as individuals. Each and every one. Sovereignty resides in the people as individuals. It's so funny because when you lay out these basic premises, the first premise, when you lay it out, sounds perfectly reasonable. People as a group, majority of the people, blah, 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 blah. It all sounds reasonable. Then you just turn to the second one and say people as individuals go, oh, yeah, people as individuals. Yeah, I got that. But you see, these are not the same thing. And they lead to different conclusions. 
A Republican Constitution views the natural and inalienable rights of these joint and equal sovereign individuals as preceding the formation of governments. So first come rights, and then comes government. Indeed, as I noted yesterday, the Declaration of Independence tells us that it is, quote, to secure these rights, unquote, that, quote, governments are instituted among men. The Declaration is very, very consistent with this vision of popular sovereignty I'm talking about. And remember, the, I said, as I said yesterday, the rights that were referred to in the Declaration were individual rights. The life, liberty, and property are individual rights belonging to individuals. This individualistic conception of popular sovereignty was most strikingly presented in the first great constitutional case decided by the Supreme Court in 1793, just four years after the Constitution was adopted. The case is called Chisholm versus Georgia. Now, how many people in this room have heard the name of the case, Chisholm versus Georgia? Well, more than, I mean, not, a, not very many, but more than usual. How many people have read the case, Chisholm versus Georgia? How many people, if I called on you, could tell me what Chisholm versus Georgia is about? What's Chisholm versus Georgia about? I'm pretty sure it has to do Different case. I think that's that's. I think that might be Fletcher versus Peck. But I, I it's a, it, but that's has Yazoo County, and they took the and then they undid the. That's, that's the different case. But it is Georgia, and it was a John Marshall opinion too. So you're very close. Yes. Yes. The only reason people. First of all, just let me tell you. It's not, if, if I took this poll of law students, very few people would raise their hand, or even practicing <laughs> lawyers, they'd, very few would, because Chisholm versus, Chisholm versus Georgia is not taught in constitutional law generally. It's only taught in federal courts because it was to reverse Chisholm versus Georgia that the 11th Amendment was enacted, and there are cases that arise under the 11th Amendment, so if you're ever teaching anyone what the 11th Amendment means, you first teach them about Chisholm versus Georgia because now you have an amendment of the Constitution that was used to reverse it. They need to know what the case was that it was reversed by the 11th Amendment, and that's pretty much all they know. So it's a relatively unknown case, even though it was the first big constitutional controversy to hit the Supreme Court. Big deal. It was a big deal at the time. Big enough deal you can now see to have a constitutional amendment enacted to reverse it. That's how big it was. Um, but so Chisholm versus Georgia was a big deal, and it was a simple case. It involved a lawsuit brought against the state of Georgia by a citizen of South Carolina. The suit was for breach of contract to pay for goods that had been supplied to Georgia during the Revolutionary War. Chisholm actually was the holder of the debt. I mean, he wasn't actually the guy that supplied the goods. He bought the, he bought the paper. He bought the note. And now he was suing Georgia to enforce the note that Georgia had issued in payment of the debt. Okay. So you have a citizen of South... This is key. The citizen of South Carolina suing the state of Georgia for breach of contract. That's it. That's the case. Now, Article 3, Section 2 of the Constitution... I didn't have you bring your things today. You don't have to really pull them out. This is not that central a point. I'll read you what it says... It specifies, Article 3, Section 2 talks about what the jurisdiction of the courts are, and it says that the judicial power of the United States shall extend to controversies between a state and citizens of another state. 
the judicial power of the United States shall extend to controversies between a state and citizens of another state. Now, that certainly seems to cover a suit brought by a citizen of South Carolina against the state of Georgia. That just seems like the plain meaning of that of the Constitution allows this lawsuit to go forward. Nevertheless, the state of Georgia asserted that it had sovereign immunity from such a lawsuit and refused even to appear in the Supreme Court to defend itself because to appear, they said, was to grant the jurisdiction of the court. The court had no jurisdiction because Georgia was a sovereign state with sovereign immunity and could not be sued in federal court by a citizen of another state. And that was the question before the court. Could a citizen of one state under Article Three sue another state in federal court, given what Article Three seems to say? Now, in Chisholm, the Supreme Court, and later on, maybe in the question and answer, I'll tell you why the 11th Amendment got passed, why I think the 11th Amendment got passed to reverse Chisholm. But in Chisholm, the Supreme Court, by a majority vote of four to one, in those days there were only five justices, by four to one, rejected Georgia's assertion of sovereign immunity, rejected it. The majority concluded instead that members of the public could sue state governments because sovereignty rests with the people themselves and not with the states. The justices in Chisholm affirmed that in America, the states are not kings and their legislatures are not the supreme successor to the crown. Now, I'm going to focus on two opinions that were given by the justices. In those days, there was no opinion of the court. Nowadays, we have opinions of the court that people pour over and study as though they are statutes that have to be parsed and words that have to be followed. In those days, the justices voted, and then each one would explain their vote by stating what their opinion is, their opinion that justifies why they voted the way they did. And they expressed their opinions one after the other, or seriatim, and so these were, called, these were known as seriatim opinions. So the only opinions you got were the opinions of each justice, why they voted the way they did. Uh, the idea of having, the, the, the practice of having an opinion of the court was initiated by John Marshall, one of my least favorite justices uh, in history. Uh, not my absolute least favorite justice. That's a very, there's a very strong competition for who that might be. Um, but, um, I mean, there's many candidates depending on who you, whose opinions you read latest. Um, but... Um, John Marshall is up there, uh, as, he has some, but he has some good stuff, too, so it's why I can't like, totally dislike him. Uh, but uh, Marshall invented the idea of an opinion of the court. You can see how this would have worked to Marshall and the court's favor because he got everybody together to vote for one opinion. So that raised the visibility of that opinion, the prestige or stature of that opinion, and eventually those opinions started to be treated as law themselves, which enhanced the power of the court, perhaps beyond what it ought to be. When Marshall, issued the, when Marshall wrote the opinion in McCulloch versus Maryland that it upheld the constitutionality of the National Bank using pretty sweeping language about the meaning of the Necessary and Proper Clause, James Madison, who was then president, and had signed the bank bill into law. So he thought at this point the bank, bill was, bank was constitutional or arguably constitutional. He objected to the decision in, in the opinion in McCulloch. Uh, he said, the, you know, this was an overly, he, so he strongly criticized Marshall's opinion in McCulloch, and he, he said he longed for the day, he wished we still had seriatim opinions, so he, we could hear the opinions of the other justices, not just this one opinion, 
because he would have liked to have heard why the other justices might have voted that way. But all we got was one opinion. So Madison said, you know, I really liked it. I think I preferred the system in which we had seriatim opinions. I think I did too. I do too. There would be a reform of the court that really wouldn't change anything except what they issue, the work product they issue. Okay. So what we have in Chisholm are the opinions of the judges, not an opinion of the court. And there's two of which of these opinions I want to focus on. The first is by Justice James Wilson, and the second is by Chief Justice John Jay. James Wilson was amongst the most influential of the founders. He was um, perhaps the most prominent lawyer in the state of Pennsylvania during the Constitutional Convention. He was also very prominent at the, Con at the Continental Congress. Um, I think he might have gotten a bad depiction in, uh, what's the stage play, the musical about the, what is it? Hamilton. Not Hamilton. I haven't seen Hamilton yet. That's the, uh, 1776. I think Wilson was portrayed as a bad guy in that, in that play. He actually was a very interesting guy, um, very, very learned. Uh, he was the first professor of law at the University of Pennsylvania, then called the College of Philadelphia. Uh, in his, so therefore, he actually is the founder of the law school at Penn. Um, it's called James, you know, it's referred to sometimes as James Wilson's Law School. He gave the, these lectures on jurisprudence as an associate justice um, in Philadelphia that all the, uh, the big, because you know, Philadelphia was the seat of the federal government at the time, so, the, uh, so Washington was there and all these other people were there attending his lectures, uh, and they were published, and they're very interesting. He, he, is not, he was a Scot as opposed to an Englishman, and so much of his background was Scottish, and his orientation towards natural rights, which he was a big proponent of, was Scottish rather than English, and make, makes for some interesting stuff. So Wilson's a very interesting guy, and at the Constitutional Convention, James Madison is sometimes called the father of the Constitution, but the, the, Wilson and, and Madison were kind of in league. Madison from Virginia, Wilson from Pennsylvania, two big states. Wilson was the senior well-known lawyer of the two. Madison was the junior up-and-coming guy, more of a behind-the-scenes man at this point from Virginia. Um, and so the two of them worked in tandem at the, at the Constitutional Convention. And Wilson was thought to be one of the people most responsible for the actual wording of the Constitution, because he was on the Committee of Detail that wrote, that wrote the Constitution. Um, and Madison was not actually on that committee. All right, so um, what does Wilson say? Wilson's opinion is the one that I think is the most interesting. But Jay's is good, too. I'll get to Jay. Well, let me just tell you who John Jay was. John Jay was Chief Justice of the United States, our first Chief Justice. Uh, in fact, Jay, uh, John Marshall was our third Chief Justice. Oliver Ellsworth was the second one. And uh, John Jay was one of the original authors of the Federalist Papers. It was originally a, com a, a, a collaboration between Madison, Hamilton, and Jay, but Jay lost interest in the project. He got busy. He was considered a diplomat. He was a representative, uh, our, our representative to the Court of St. James. And he negotiated a lot of our treaties back in the day. And so he wrote about five Federalist Papers. Then he dropped off the project. But he became our first Chief Justice of the United States. All right, so James Wilson. Here's what James Wilson, in his opinion, he began his opinion by stressing that the Constitution nowhere uses the term sovereignty. Think about that. It's not in the Constitution. Sovereignty, the word sovereignty doesn't appear. He says, to the Constitution of the United States, the term sovereign is totally unknown. There was only one place in the Constitution where it could have been used with propriety, he observed, referring to the preamble. They might have put it in the preamble. 
But he said, even in that place, it would not perhaps have comported with the delicacy of those who ordained and established that constitution. They might have announced themselves sovereign people of the United States, but serenely conscious of the fact, they avoided the ostentatious declaration, unquote. And he might here have been talking about himself. He might have been talking about, when I helped write the Constitution, we decided not to put the term sovereign into the preamble. Maybe he's doing that. But it's interesting it's not there. Wilson contended that in his, the very, very, this opinion is, by the way, very long. Uh, if the term sovereign is to be used at all, it should refer to the individual person. Quote, laws derived from the pure source of equality and justice must be founded on the consent of those whose obedience they require. The sovereign, when traced to this source, must be found in the man. The sovereign, when traced to this source, must be found in the man. In other words, obedience rests on the consent of the individual person who was asked to obey the law. Wilson believed that the only reason, quote, a free man is bound by human laws is that he binds himself, unquote. So by found in the man means found in the individual. That's where sovereignty lies for Wilson. For Wilson, states are nothing more than an aggregate of free individuals. An aggregate of free individuals. Quote, if one man, an original sovereign, may bind himself to the jurisdiction of the court, so he has to go to court, why may not an aggregate of free men, a collection of original sovereigns is his phrase, a collection of original sovereigns do this likewise. If one person can bind themselves and have to go to court, why can't a group of individual sovereigns bind themselves and then they have to go to court? If the dignity, he said, if the dignity of each singly is undiminished by having to go to court, the dignity of all jointly must be unimpaired. So look at that individualistic conception of popular sovereignty. Individual sovereignty, joint operations by a group of, or people uh, uh, in the aggregate, of an aggregation of free men. Now, Wilson was not alone in locating sovereignty in the individual person. In his opinion in Chisholm, Chief Justice John Jay referred tellingly, in his opinion, to quote, the joint and equal sovereigns of this country. I love that phrase. The joint and equal sovereigns of this country. Jay affirmed, quote, the great and glorious principle that the people are the sovereigns of this country and consequently that fellow citizens and joint sovereigns cannot be degraded by appearing with each other in their own courts to have their controversies determined. Fellow citizens and joint sovereigns. I love that phrase too. In his discussion, he, Will, Jay refers to that popular sovereignty in which every citizen partakes, connecting the concept of popular sovereignty. So, you know, it's not just me saying they're talking about popular sovereignty, right? That's what Jay says he's talking about. The popular sovereignty in which every citizen partakes, clearly connecting individual sovereignty with popular sovereignty. Justices Wilson and Jay's individualist conception of popular sovereignty present the radical yet fundamental idea that if anyone is sovereign, it is we the people as individuals, in the citizenry as a whole, rather than in a majority of the electorate. It's everybody, not just a majority. So what are the implications of adopting an individual rather than a collective conception of popular sovereignty? I contend that an individual conception of popular sovereignty yields a Republican 
rather than a democratic constitution. Under a Republican constitution, because the people consists of each and every person, the power to govern must be delegated to some subset of the people. That sounds realistic. This small subset of the people who are empowered to govern are not to be confused with the people themselves. They are different. They are a subset. They are considered to be mere servants of the people. The subset are servants of the people. The people are the principals or masters, and those in government merely their agents or servants. This is the language of agency law, principal agency law. As agents, they are to govern on behalf of the people and subject to its ultimate control. That also are, is a basic fundamental principle of agency law. To ensure that these servants remain within what the Declaration called their just powers, I emphasized this yesterday for a reason, the legislatures only have just powers, under the Republican Constitution, this lawmaking power must itself be limited by law. The lawmaking power of the subset must be limited by law to keep it within its just powers. The Republican Constitution then provides the law that governs those who govern us. The purpose of the Constitution is to provide the law that governs those who govern us, the people, the sovereigns. And it's put in writing so that it can be enforced against these servants of the people, each of whom must swear a solemn oath to this Constitution. That's what their oath is. They have to swear an oath to this Constitution, the written one, not the living one, this one. <clears throat> to ensure these servants remain within what the Declaration calls their just powers, as I said, they have to be limited by law, the Constitution provides the law that governs those who govern us. And these servants who swear an oath to this Constitution, the written one, can no more change the law that governs them than we can change the speed limits that are imposed on us. In short, under the Republican Constitution, the meaning of the written Constitution must remain the same until it's properly changed. The meaning must remain the same until it's properly changed which is another way of saying that a written constitution must be interpreted according to its original meaning until it's properly amended. That's what it means to subject the governors to the law that governs them the way we're subjected to the laws. We can't change the speed limits because we don't like them without going through the legislative process of getting the speed limit changed. The same is true with the law that governs our servants. Under the Republican Constitution, judges too are servants of the people who have a duty to adhere to the law of the Constitution they take an oath to uphold above any statute passed by Congress which they don't take an oath to uphold. Judges are given lifetime tenure precisely so that they may hold legislatures within the proper scope of their just powers and by so doing protect the individual rights retained by the people and the privileges or immunities of citizens from being denied disparaged, or abridged by their servants in the legislature. So that's the Republican Constitution. And the difference, the implications that follow from it are different than that which follows from the Democratic Constitution. So do we have a Republican or do we have a Democratic Constitution? 
I suggest that what I'm calling our Republican Constitution began with the Declaration of Independence I talked to you about yesterday, which stated that first come rights and then comes government, and it is to secure these rights that governments are instituted among men. So the proper measure of any government is how well it protects the natural and inalienable rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But the Articles of Confederation, which were put into effect immediately um, after the Declaration, um, implemented the, um, only imperfectly implemented this individual conception of popular sovereignty. State governments at those days were dominated by legislatures, some annually elected, with weak executives and subordinate judges. As popularly elected state legislatures enacted measures that undermined the rights of the minority to the benefit of the majority, and these, the minority at this point were creditors and the majority were debtors, and so debtor relief laws were passed by the majorities in legislatures violating the rights of the minority. This is what got a lot of people so upset that they had a constitutional convention to try to get rid of it. And they also enacted laws that protected in-state businesses from protection, from, from competition from out-of-state businesses, because the in-state businesses had the support of the majority. Out-of-state businesses had no electoral representation, representation in the states. To address these problems, that ha and as a result of this, these, these, pro these practices, the economy tanked. So basically what happened is, when we started, the, we started out... People had a theory. They wanted to overthrow the monarch because the monarch was screwing the people. The screwing, I'm going to use this term screwing. It's a technical legal term. We use, uh, we, I'm a, I, we use it a lot in Cook County where I was a prosecutor. All right, so the, um, uh, under the, what, the regime we overthrew, the monarchy was screwing the people. So when people said, well, what's the solution to that problem? Well, put the hands, power in the hands of the people themselves because the people won't screw themselves. That was the theory. That was their theory. That was their Republican theory. They called it the Republican theory at that time. And then what happened is after they lived under the Articles, it turns out the people did screw themselves. But, they, but this was contrary to the theory they had. So they had to, they had to figure out, well, wait a second. How, why is this happening? This is not supposed to happen. It goes against our principles. Uh, and James Madison started to come up with a solution. In fact, he started to come up, come up with the analysis of the problem prior to the Philadelphia Convention. He wrote in it himself an essay called The Vices of the American Constitutional System in which he identified the problem of faction and subsets and special interests as the reason why the majority, that, that, the, that the people did screw themselves through these majoritarian legislatures. And that he ultimately ended up putting in Federalist 10 after the Constitution was enacted. But he'd figured out the theory before he went to Philadelphia to figure out what the problem was. So they had a theory. They tried it out in practice. It didn't work. And now they have, a, have to have a new thinking about what republicanism means. Republicanism before meant the people try to rule themselves. Now republicanism is going to have a new meaning. This is what I'm calling the Republican Constitution. They changed the meaning of Republican at this point. Although I think it's still consistent with the Declaration of Independence. So it isn't totally new. It's just the means to implement this individual notion of popular sovereignty has to have to be revised. And it was revised in Philadelphia to perform a more perfect union. To better secure the natural rights of the sovereign people, states were barred from impairing the obligation of contract, which is what they were doing with debtor laws or interfering with interstate commerce, which is what they were doing with protectionist legislation, or commerce with foreign nations, which is also what they were doing, making separate treaties with foreign countries, trade agreements. <clears throat> These and other powers were placed in the hands of a new form of national government, placed in the hands of Congress. The powers of this national government were then divided into three separate and co-equal branches, each of which was to check and balance the others. 
The lawmaking power was, was to be separated from its enforcement, and an independent judiciary was empowered to ensure that all three branches um, played by the rules laid down in the Republican Constitution. And the lawmaking power of Congress in, was limited in this Constitution to the powers herein granted. That's what it says in Article 1. The first sentence of Article 1 says, all po legislative powers herein granted shall be reposed in the Congress of the United States. And everybody had to take an oath to uphold this Constitution, and which was put in writing to ensure that it would not be forgotten. Now, unfortunately, even the new and improved Republican Constitution was incomplete. Southern states continued to maintain their tyrannical and unjust rule by a majority, or in some states even by a minority, over their slaves, whose pre-existing rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness were altogether denied. Eventually, a new Republican party, kind of like, it's kind of handy for my story that that's the name of the party, a new Republican party is formed with an expressly anti-slavery agenda, which supplanted the Whig party. And in just six years, it captured the presidency and control of Congress, which induced the southern states to secede from the Union even before the Republicans took office, taking with them those they held in bondage, the minority. After the Civil War ended by force of arms, the Republicans in the, 39th, in the 38th Congress drafted and secured the ratification of the 13th Amendment to forever abolish slavery, even in states that had previously allowed it, and gave Congress the enumerated power to enforce this abolition. That's section two of the 13th Amendment. So they were still big on enumerated powers, they just added a new one to the Constitution. But winning the war and amending the Constitution turned out not to be enough. Southern racists resisted the new constitutional order, engaged in a brutal engaging in a brutal campaign of public and private terrorism. And they were all members of the Democratic Party, as a matter of fact, and they, and they were advocating Democratic majoritarian rule in these states. So the Republicans proposed two new amendments that would finally complete our Republican Constitution. The 14th Amendment would protect the privileges and immunities of US citizens from being abridged by the legislative, judicial, and executive branches of the states. Then, when the incentives of the, in the 14th Amendment for black suffrage proved inadequate, the Republicans drafted and secured the ratification of the 15th Amendment to guarantee the right of blacks to vote. Sadly, all these efforts to complete the Republican Constitution were then stymied by the Supreme Court. In case after case, the court gutted one provision after the other, effectively nullifying key provisions of the written Constitution itself. It is therefore no coincidence that it was in the 1890 case of Hans versus Louisiana that the Supreme Court declared that the 11th Amendment had repudiated Chisholm versus Georgia in favor of a principle of state sovereignty. The court had not said that up till then, had not interpreted the 11th Amendment that way. But in, as of 1890, they interpreted the 11th Amendment as having repudiated Chisholm versus Georgia in favor of state sovereignty. And then just six years later in Plessy versus Ferguson, the court completely deferred to the sovereign states using their police powers to segregate the races supposedly to ensure the public order. It was not until 1952 in Brown versus Board of Education that the Supreme Court, led by Republican Earl Warren, who had been nominated to be Chief Justice by Republican Dwight Eisenhower, led a unanimous court to invalidate popularly enacted racial segregation, racially segregated school laws, which was then followed by the gradual invalidation of all racial segregation. Together with new civil rights and voting rights acts, 
These court rulings constituted a second reconstruction that finally redeemed the Republican Constitution's promise that the rights of the individual must take precedence over the collective will of the people as manifested by a majority of the electorate. Now, it's no coincidence that the textual provisions of the Constitution that recognize the individualist nature of popular sovereignty have had to be ignored to make our Constitution more democratic than it was written to be. Take the Ninth Amendment, which affirms that the enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. We know that these rights retained by the people are retained by the people as individuals. The rights in the Ninth Amendment are retained by the people as individuals because the Ninth Amendment was added to prevent construing the other individual rights in the Bill of Rights as the only rights people have. So if the other rights in the Bill of Rights are individual rights, so are the rights that the Ninth Amendment refers to. And then the Tenth Amendment affirms that the powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution, nor prohibited by it to the states, are reserved to the states respectively, or to the people. Not just to the states, but also to the people. So the Constitution expressly acknowledges that the people themselves may retain powers as well as rights, and it expressly distinguishes the people from the states. The people are not the same thing as the states under the Constitution, under the Tenth Amendment. Then the 14th Amendment says that no state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States, which altered our system of federalism to create a power in Congress and in the federal courts to protect the privileges or immunities of citizens from being abridged by their own state legislatures in the way they had been under slavery and also under Jim Crow. But what are these individual rights retained by the people? This subject came up yesterday. Tell us about what these rights are. They seem rather, un, un, because they're unenumerated, they seem rather indefinite. Here is where I think the idea of pop, individual popular sovereignty helps us better to understand just what rights and powers, privileges and immunities are retained by the people. It's kind of a new way of defining the rights retained by the people. Because under the Republican Constitution, the rights and powers retained by their people resemble those enjoyed by sovereign monarchs. We are the kings of us, the kings and queens of us. We are the sovereign. And so the rights we have are the same rights that sovereign monarchs claim. That sounds odd. That sounds weird. But just wait. Let me tell you. Just as sovereign monarchs claim jurisdiction over what? Over their territories... Sovereign individual citizens have jurisdiction over their private property. Private property defines our territories. Territories of, go of, of states, countries, define monarchs' territories. That's lines on a map. We have lines on a map defining our territories. That's private property. Just as one monarch may not interfere with the territorial jurisdiction of other monarchs, no citizen may interfere with the person and property of any other. Just as monarchs may consensually enter into legal relations with other monarchs by entering into treaties, so too may individuals freely alter their legal relations with their fellow citizens and joint sovereigns by entering into contracts with each other. All of these private law rights are just the individual equivalents of the rights that monarchs claim. That's all they are. Nothing more mysterious than that. Now, of course, the Republican Constitution was established in part 
so that these liberties of the individual may be regulated by law. Libertarians should not be opposed to the regulation of liberty by law. All liberty may be regulated, and if you don't believe that, just think about the law of contract. Do you as a libertarian disagree that there should be a contract law to figure out what's an enforceable contract from not? I'm not saying who enforces it, but there ought to be such a law. And if you agree with that, you too believe in the regulation of contracts, because that's what contract law does. It makes regular the making of contracts. And there's nothing unlibertarian about doing that. So we're not against regulation. We may be skeptical of some government regulation, but we're not against the regulation of liberty. Liberty ought to be regulated so that one person's actions don't unduly affect the liberty rights of another person. That's what reasonable regulation is supposed to be doing. But the proper purpose of such regulation must be limited to the equal protection of the rights of each and every person, because each and every one of us are the sovereigns as the Equal Protection Clause in the 14th Amendment eventually went on to expressly affirm. Any law that does not have this as its purpose is beyond the just powers of a Republican legislature. In short, when the liberty of a fellow citizen and joint sovereign is restricted, judges as agents or servants of the people have a judicial duty to critically assess whether the legislature is improperly exceeding its just powers. This does not entail, as I said yesterday, that judges should be speculating about the natural rights of man either to restrict legislative power or to require that these judicially discovered rights be honored by other branches. This is not what they have been trained by lawyers to do. Instead of singling out special rights or special groups for special protections, judges should ensure that laws restricting the life, liberty, or property of any person has, have not, has not been irrational, arbit, is, has not been a, is not irrational, arbitrary, or discriminatory. That should be the standard that the judges apply. The end of such measures must be articulated by the other branches, and then the means allegedly adopted to implement these ends must be critically assessed to ensure that they are neither unnecessary infringements on liberty nor improper efforts to enrich or benefit some at the expense of their fellow citizens and joint sovereigns. And judges should also independently assess whether Congress has exceeded its enumerated powers or has delegated too much of its power to the executive branch. Today we live in a world in which most people adhere to aspects of both the Republican and the Democratic constitutions. Sometimes they favor the will of the people, and other times they urge the protection of individual rights. Much intellectual effort has been expended to make this combination coherent, but ultimately the two cannot coexist. One little footnote here is, I think because of the appeal of the other, each, because both visions have appeal, each vision attempts to include within it the other. So the Democratic Constitution includes within it the protection of individual rights, but just the ones that have been recognized by the majoritarian process of lawmaking or by the Constitution, but they still have individual rights doing some of the work. And in the Republican Constitution, we understand the power of legislatures, the power of elections to check power. We would not want to live in a country where we couldn't throw the bums out. But throwing the bums out as a check on power is not the same thing as ruling from the ruling from the people themselves, that we are supposed to rule others by voting. We're supposed to use voting to protect ourselves from those who rule us. So we integrate, the Republican Constitution integrates voting and elections into it in a subordinate way, the way that the Democratic Constitution introduces rights in a subordinate way. That's because each of these visions are appealing. 
But uh, ultimately, they are incompatible with each other. And the incoherence of holding both in your head at the same time leads to opportunistic assertions of the will of the people when it favors your policy positions, and when it doesn't, talking about the tyranny of the majority. We can do this on a dime. Well, the will of the people, they're for me when, I'm, when they're for me, and when they're not, well, that's the tyranny of the majority, and I'm against that. In recent years, however, we have witnessed a growing sympathy for reviving and renewing our Republican Constitution's commitment to the sovereignty of the people as individuals. Only by recognizing the difference between the Democratic Constitution and the Republican Constitution can we ever hope to recapture the benefits that have distinguished the American form of constitutionalism from that of other countries. The benefit of realizing that first come the rights of the people as individuals, and only then comes government as their servant. The benefit of realizing that the will of the majority is not the solution to the problem of constitutional legitimacy, but is the problem a Republican form of government is needed to solve. The will of the majority is the problem that we have this to solve. For only a Republican constitution like ours, like this one, can, if it's followed, secure the sovereignty of the people, each and every one. Thanks. All right, well, unfortunately, we only have 20 minutes for questions today. Last night I gave you a half hour. Today we have 20 minutes, and I'm going to please state your questions briefly, not statements, but questions briefly, and, uh, or if it's a statement, make the statement brief, and then um, I'll try to get to as many people as I can. Let's start here. I, I have two questions that require only brief answers. You said that, um, that there is a difference uh, in point of view of natural rights uh, in between the Scottish tradition and the English tradition, what would that difference be? Uh, they were there were just different ways of justifying or explaining uh, ex um, explaining where natural rights came from. I can't at the moment tell you what they are, but they have different traditions and um, significance to that. No, not particularly. I mean, they're, they're, they they do end up having you know different emphases in what they're. But I honestly, I just can't tell you. Well, thank you. The, the other question is, before our Constitution, was it asserted by every monarchy that the monarch owned all property and that there was no private property in, say, any place in Europe or wherever? Um, I mean, the rise of the monarchy is itself an interesting topic. There, initially, there wasn't a strong monarchy in Europe. Europe was, had clans and tribes. Um, and the relationship between the monarch and the individual changed over the years. Right. And so at some point, under feudalism, uh, there came to be a theory that the monarch ultimately may have owned everything. But I don't think that was inevitable. I don't, I don't think that was inevitably uh, a part of every constitutional order. So private property itself was not a, a revolutionary idea? Oh, by, made by us? Absolutely not. Hmm. I mean, we, John Locke, you know, he was a Brit, and... He had a whole book about private property, as did many, many others. John Locke is just the, peop the person that was both, you know, in some respects, the most prominent theorist of his day, but not the only one that the founders knew about, uh, and the one that survives today because, in some respects, he's the easiest to understand. But presumably, there is no private property in John Locke's country. You know, this has not turned out to be quick at all, if you notice. <laughs> <laughs> Neither the questions nor the answers. Okay. Yes. Um, Randy, I don't happen to believe that polls are you know a way to judge what the, what the majority of people really think. So having said that, 
for those people who do buy into the democratic constitution, how do you believe they determine what the majority opinion of the people is? Um, they typically, you know, base it on all their friends. You know, they don't know anybody that doesn't agree with them, so that's the majority view. That's what I thought. Yeah. And then if a poll works out, if the poll supports that view, they love that poll. And the one thing I think about, I mean, this is an aside, I mean, I have a pet peeve about empirical research, you know, statistics, empirical research, because this is claimed to be like hard and scientific fact and truth and natural rights, that's like mystical and uncertain and stuff. But if you notice the way people deal with empirical surveys, including polls, is when the empirical results come out the way they like, then that's science. And if they don't, then they question the methodology of the poll. They question the methodology of the, of the uh, study. Uh, and they're easy to question these methodologies because they're almost always you know, highly peckable. Um, but um, people aren't persuaded by empirical uh, evidence that comes out the, other than their basic fundamental priors. And the same thing is true with their view of what everybody wants. But my point is that even if, even if the majority goes against them, they immediately switch to, well, that's the tyranny of the majority, and we have individual rights. So they've got both things going on at the same time. Yes? Um, I don't know where this idea comes from, and you might know, but I've noticed that there's a thread in right-wing and Republican rhetoric that says that um, the, the Second Amendment uh, exists to be yet another check on the power of the government and that people being well-armed is a way to keep the government from having too much power. Um, but that seems to uh, also sort of imply or potentially devolve into a, another kind of majoritarianism. So I'm wondering your opinion on that, both constitutionally and philosophically. Yeah, well, there's absolutely no question that one of the principal um, um, arguments on behalf of the right to arms at the time of the founding was protection against uh, tyrannical government. Um, that the, and it was basically as an deterrent, deterrent, because if the people were armed and they were not supine, then governments wouldn't even try to abuse them because they would know they couldn't get away with it. So it was as a deterrent effect. As you know, so if you declare the country a gun-free zone, then it's more likely to taking advantage, be taken advantage of. Like putting up a sign in your house that says, "This house is a gun-free house." Is that going to make it more or less likely that somebody might come in? And I think, on balance, it might make it more likely that someone comes in that you don't want to have be there. If we make the country a gun-free zone, it makes it more likely that people with guns, who are uh, the government, our servants. Um, are going to abuse their power because they know they can. And that was the theory. Um, and any power that resides in the population generally could be abused. In fact, Madison said, look, you ha uh, in a Republican government, you, you have to have a check against where the greatest, in any government, you need a check against where the greatest power lies. And in a Republican government, the greatest power lies in the majority of the people. So therefore, there must be checks on the power of the majority of the people. And that's true. Uh, and there are checks on the power of the majority of the people um, th that we still have. But I would say that the right to keep and bear arms is one of the most important uh, of the individual rights we have to put checks on those who govern us. Yes? Um, looking at the beginning of the 14th Amendment where it says, um, all persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States, I'm wondering... You know, you hear more and more about these uh, ankle, uh, anchor babies coming in, and, and seems like if someone is a citizen of another country and they're here illegally, they're not subject to our jurisdiction. Has that ever been challenged, or what is the? I don't, I don't understand how we continue to have all these anchor babies when it very clearly says 
your parents have to be subject to the jurisdiction of the U.S. Right. Um, this could very quickly um, turn into a discussion of every conceivable constitutional provision that people have a question about. I will say that people have made the argument um, that subject to the jurisdiction of the United States, which was originally uh, applied at the very minimum to members of the diplom diplomatic corps who are in the United States and not subject to the jurisdiction of the United States, um, could also conceivably apply to, you, to nationals of other countries who are not here legally. Uh, it could be applied that way. People have arg That argument has appeared in the public by law professors and other people. It has not been litigated in the courts, and I would not necessarily be optimistic that it would be, that it would, it would be upheld in the courts, but I think it's a perfectly coherent position. I myself don't have an independent view at this point on whether it's correct. I, I also don't have a view that it's incorrect. I mean, I've read some articles on both sides of this issue, not enough for me to make up my mind as to whether it applies to the citizens of foreign nationals. But it's not a crazy argument. It's just an argument that's not recognized and hasn't been recognized in U.S. law for some time. Yes? So it seems that you're arguing that um, the only purpose of positive law is to enshrine our pre-existing natural rights. No, I'm, I'm not actually not arguing that at all, but continue. Okay, so so maybe that makes this question relevant then. But um, was, my question was, given that... But I'm glad you identified the premise, because I may disagree with your premise. So okay, go ahead. Well, um, it seems to me that, that if you hold that seriously, then um, you should just abandon the study of, of positive law, because it seems like there's two possibilities. Either the law actually enshrines your pre-existing natural rights, in which case the natural rights do all the work. You should just study natural rights. Or it doesn't, in which case the law is irrelevant. So why study the law at all if you hold this view? This is even a better question than I thought it was going to be. Um, <laughs> the, the, the subtitle of my book, The Structure of Liberty, is called Justice and the Rule of Law. And a very, very important part of the book is aimed at libertarians who essentially, and I'm not saying this is you because you just asked a question, but libertarians I grew up with who basically put all their eggs in the rights basket. And the rule of law, if anything, is a subordinate, plays a very subordinate role, and you're questioning whether it should play any role at all. Um, and in the book, I try to explain why the reason why that doesn't work as well as libertarians. I got this, in, I got this insight when I became a first-year law student. And when I was a first-year law student, I was a good, very consistent, very opinionated libertarian guy. And I got into my classes, and there were all these hypothetical cases, real cases and hypothetical cases. And I'm trying to figure out, as a student, what's the libertarian right answer in torts class, for example. And I found I couldn't really figure it out very easily. I, I was I don't know. And then I thought, well, maybe this is just me. And, I, at, and when, during my first semester of law school, I went to New York, and I actually met Murray Rothbard uh, while I was a student. And we ended up in Murray's apartment that night, the day that I met him. And um, my classmate in, who introduced me to him, who knew him, and I were in Murray's apartment. And we started throwing at him all the hypotheticals that we were getting as first-year law students. And you know, Murray Rothbard, for those of you who don't know, was this famous libertarian economist and theorist. And his nickname was Mr. Libertarian. And so we started throwing him all the hypotheticals, and Murray's reaction was he didn't know. Right, right, I don't know. Right, right, I don't know what the, uh, you know what the answer to that question is. And so I thought, well, wait a second. That's interesting. I don't know the answer. Mr. Libertarian doesn't know the answer. What's up with that? And that sort of planted a seed in my head. And the book, uh, The Structure of Liberty, is an attempt to suggest that there's an actual reason why natural rights cannot do all the work. Natural rights cannot do all the work because the way we derive natural rights is by abstracting from the particulars of each of our circumstances. We try to figure out what we all have in common 
And based on what we all share in common, we make certain inferences about what we all must have in order to pursue happiness while living in close proximity to each other. But in the real world, there are many differences as well as commonalities. And if you have a system of rights or principles based on only commonalities, they are very abstract rights. And if you try to apply them to particular situations, you're going to find in anything but the most obvious simple cases, it's very difficult to do. So what we need is a rule of law that comes up with what you might call conventional answers to when this guy's property line ends and then the next person's property begins, even though the principles, they're not derivable from, logically from the principles, but then they must be consistent with the principles. You can have rules of law, and they can be done in a variety. The, the law of contract is a whole system in the United States. There's also a law of contract in France, which is a completely different set of rules and principles. But that law of contract will yield mostly the same results of our law of contract because they're both consistent with the underlying principle of freedom of contract, even though they're different from each other. So you need law to settle a lot of these questions. Um, it, it is philosophically in a subordinate position to the justice or rights, but operationally, it actually assumes a primary importance because the discussion of individual abstract rights cannot take you all the way you need to go in a legal system to resolve individual cases and controversies. Now, the, when I question the premises of your question, I realize I've gone on very long, but this is a really important fundamental question. That was really about something else. When you said the premise was that the only thing the positive law is supposed to do is instantiate natural rights. Um, in some respects, that's somewhat true, although I've now explained why you need positive law to do that. But also, positive law can do more things than that, as long as what it's doing is not violating natural rights. So for example, it could build bridges, it could build roads, it could do a lot of things. Building roads is not protecting natural rights. The question is, does building roads violate natural rights? Well, maybe if you use the power of eminent domain, it does. That's a different question. But I'm just saying that government can be created to do a lot of positive goods that are not themselves natural rights, as long as by doing that, people are not violating natural rights. So I reject the premise that, and many of the rights that people want to have are not rights that are to, to which the Ninth Amendment refers. They're just rights that are created by legislation. And those rights might be good rights to have, but they are subordinate. They're not natural rights themselves. Good question. Thanks. So I agree with your whole distinction between the Republican Constitution and the Democratic Constitution, although I'm, I'm not really sure how to reconcile the, the point you quoted from Justice Wilson about, you know, we're all sovereign individual citizens who are only bound by the law because we consent to it. I don't see how that's really compatible with... I talked a little bit about uh, that last night. I'm not going to go into consent yeah. again. Uh, but the, yeah, so the main question I have, though... By the way, Wilson is the one who used the concept of, of presumed consent later on in that same opinion. So... Just so you know, presumed consent is how he answered that question, but let's just go on. So the main question I have is how you respond to what I guess I, you know, I, I don't agree with this argument, but I think it's, you know, it's, it's a common argument you see, which is a sort of extreme positivist argument of people like you know, Oliver Wendell Holmes, who argued, well, the point of the democratic constitution is not that you know, the, the democracy is always right and it embodies the will of the people and it's this magical thing that, uh, that always is progressive, but... It's just that the point of having elections is, you know, we, we, we want to solve social conflicts without killing each other, and we just have an election to prove who's the stronger party without having to fight about it and prove it on the battlefield. And so, you know, they made that argument that, well, if you, if, you, if you set up these natural rights that people have in opposition to the majority, well, then we're going to have to fight about it. 
Okay, I think, I think I've got it. I think I've got it. I'm going to kind of cut people short now because we only have five more minutes. Um, it could serve that purpose, and that could be a good purpose. That would be a subordinate purpose to the protection of rights for which government is created. So I'm, government, lots of practices can serve lots of important purposes. The, the, but that argument should not be allowed to override the rights that people have, which is exactly why guys, what guys like Holmes want to do. They think rights are mysterious. They think they're, they think they're, myth, they're myths. Um, all that they believe in is power. And then they have democracy to figure out how to handle power. And we just fundamentally disagree with that, even though there is the need for decision-making that's not going to lead us all in, back into a Hobbesian war of all against all. So we can believe that as a practical matter without believing the implications that they drew from that. Yes? Uh, you mentioned that John Marshall was among your least favorite uh, Supreme Court justices. Yes. Who was uh, among your favorite? Oh, I thought, who, are my, who is my least favorite? Oliver Wendell Holmes is probably my least favorite. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, I, I just like, and every once in a while, he does something I like, and I just, I, I just gets me so mad that he does something I like, because most of everything else I don't like. Who's my most favorite? I don't really have any most favorites, because every candidate for most favorite turns out to have really bad skeletons in the closet. I mean, so I like Lochner versus New York. Justice Rufus Peckham, who you haven't heard of, wrote that article. He could have been my most favorite, but he was also voted after he was on the court for a couple of months in the majority of Plessy versus Ferguson. I can't have somebody be my most favorite justice who voted the wrong way in Plessy versus Ferguson, which is you know upholding segrega state segregation. So that can't be the guy. I have to, if I'm forced to pick somebody other than, for example, Justice Thomas, who's really one of my most favorite justices. Um, uh, if I had to pick somebody from history, it would probably be the first uh, John Marshall, um, uh, John, Har uh, John Harlan Marshall. John Harlan, sorry, John Marshall Harlan, John, the first John Harlan, uh, Justice Harlan, uh, because he was on the right side of Plessy versus Ferguson, the only one, and he was on the right side of the slaughter of the, um, the, the, uh, the civil rights cases, which gutted the civil rights acts. Um, and he wasn't even as bad in upholding progressive legislation as Holmes was, for example, because he said there should be a presumption of constitutionality, but it's rebuttable. So I would have to say that the guy who could stand up against a, in a, an eight-to-one majority in Plessy versus Ferguson and do so for the right reasons that he articulated in his dissenting opinion is kind of a hero, and he doesn't have anything super negative balancing off, even though he ruled the wrong way in some progressive cases that I don't like, but he doesn't have anything super negative on the other side, so I would have to say he's one of my favorites. Yes. So I think the uh, presumption of liberty works well for the methods of government, but especially when you're looking at a state government that isn't constrained by enumerated powers, how can you necessarily say that the objectives are wrong when they're saying we're banning this because it's immoral and we think that we should be banning immoral things or other th objectives like okay, that? Okay, very quick answer to a very good question. Not surprising, Devin, that you asked a good question. Um, there's, uh, the, I think that state law should be evaluated according to the scope of the state, the state power, which is, goes under the rubric of the police power, and you need a theory of the police power. And police power is unenumerated, like unenumerated rights are unenumerated, and so if you don't like unenumerated things, state should have no power at all. But assuming it does have a power and it is an unenumerated power, you need a theory of it, and then the theory of it, in, the, in most everybody's theory, health and safety is in. And then some people say health, safety, and morals are in. Morals are in. And if it's health, safety, and public morals, meaning moral behavior in the public sphere, on government property and parks and streets, well, that's OK, too. But then if it's health, safety, public morals, and then private morals, well, then it gets tricky. 
And then the question is, are we bound by the original conception of the police power when it's an unenumerated power that's not in this Constitution? Uh, and I think perhaps we're not. Uh, but but that is how you would that's how you'd have to answer this. You don't ask talk about liberty. You talk about power, and then you have to have a theory of power that you're willing to justify. Do I have to call it one more? You get you get the last one. Cool. Um, so very quickly. Very quickly, so you talked you talk a lot about individual rights and the rights of the people, qua the set of all individual persons. I'm curious about states' rights, those things that are also enshrined in the 10th Amendment, and also those things that are protected by like the balance of powers in the House and the Senate. Um, what is, how does that fit into the Republican Constitution? The Constitution never speaks of states' rights, never speaks of the rights of government at all, only speaks of powers, not rights. So states do have powers, but they do not have rights, although within the federal system, they might have some rights vis-a-vis -vis the federal government because they might have justified claims against the federal government. But it's interesting, the state, the Constitution does never speaks about government rights. It's very scrupulous about speaking about powers. The person that actually wrote the words of the Constitution was a guy named Governor Morris, um, and um, he was a very good lawyer, and one expects that he, the Constitution reads much more consistently than otherwise would have because one lawyer really took took it and, and wrote it down. And he's the one that I think was pretty scrupulous about keeping that out of the Constitution. States' rights is a mixed bag, as you know. Um, states' rights were used to justify a lot of bad things. J states' rights were also used to justify a lot of good things. The abolitionist and anti-slavery people asserted states' rights, uh, the right of the northern states to be free of uh, the unjust um, run, um, um, uh, runaway, what about it? Fugitive Slave Act, thank you very much, which violated, which seriously interfered with states' rights. The Southerners, the slave power, more than willing to assert federal power when they had it uh, in favor of slavery, and they were not principled states' rights people. And in fact, when they formed their confederacy, their confederacy, their confederate constitution was anti-states' rights on many issues. Um, and so this was an opportunistic argument that they made, but that was also used against them. So states' rights can be good as a check, like elections can be good as a check. And states' rights, I mean, the fact that we have state governments exist as a check on the federal government that's very useful. And I'm in favor of federalism because you can have different social policies in different states, and people can gravitate to the states that have the social policy they like better, and we don't have to have a one-size-fits-all solution for the country. And if you make these social policies one-size-fits-all, then you're going to have a war of all against all for the federal government. And we don't want to, we want to avoid that. So I'm in favor of states in a federal system, but not strong states' rights per se, only as a means to the end of the protecting the individual rights of the people, of the sovereign people, each and every one. Thanks.